This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church, and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Caleb, Joanna, Noah, Susanna, and Sam. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and as always, we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. We'll begin, as always, with our serious questions. We have questions this time from Caleb and Joanna. First, Caleb asks, Why do you sometimes read texts from other places in the Bible during the sermon? Well, from time to time, when I'm preaching, I admit that I will point you towards other passages in Scripture besides the one that I'm preaching on. In fact, sometimes I'll even read texts outside the Bible as well from other theologians or commentaries in order to give some perspective. So, the reason I do this is because the whole Bible holds together. All of the Bible was inspired by God through the Holy Spirit working in human authors. So as a result, what is written in, for example, the book of Deuteronomy and what's written, for example, in the book of Acts all goes together. Knowing this, it's really helpful when we come to a passage that we don't quite understand. Sometimes we find difficult things in the Bible. We're not sure how to interpret them, but If that topic is addressed somewhere else in the Bible, by comparing the two passages, we can get a better understanding of what it means. Sometimes there are things that are very mysterious when they appear in one place, but if you go and look somewhere else, you'll find that they're explained with more clarity. Or sometimes things that are predicted in Old Testament prophecy, as we've been seeing in the book of Zechariah, are actually fulfilled in the New Testament so that we can understand what they mean if we go forward in time and read from Scripture uh, where those prophecies are fulfilled. I think it's really important when you're preaching to focus deeply on whatever text it is that you're preaching about. And for that reason, I don't jump around too much back and forth. I try to avoid unnecessary hopping from one place to another, because I think you can kind of lose the focus on the text if you do that too much. Having said that, though, it is really important that we get the full counsel of Scripture. So when it's necessary or helpful to take a look at another passage in the Bible, it's really good to do that. This is the reason, by the way, that many Bibles have cross-references printed in the margin, so that whenever you're reading a passage in the Bible, you always have a handy list in the margin of other passages that relate to what you're reading. Oftentimes, the very first step in interpreting whatever you're reading in the Bible is to compare it to other passages that address the same or similar things. So it's important to develop this habit of always checking out these parallels to make sure that you fully understand what the Bible teaches in the text that you happen to be reading. And now Joanna asks, how do you become a disciple? 
Well, this question is following up on an earlier episode where we talked about discipleship and what it means to be a disciple. To be a disciple, just to refresh your memory, is to be a follower of Jesus, a person whose life is disciplined to follow the example of Jesus. Now, the question about how you become a disciple is really interesting, though, because even though discipleship involves following Jesus, and so you, you have to actually follow him, you have to practice your faith in order to be a good disciple, the question of how you become a disciple is actually pretty simple. We become disciples by faith. So when we have faith in Jesus Christ and we declare that faith before the church, we become Jesus's disciples. So at that moment, we might say we are all disciples of Jesus. And the question is just, are we good disciples or are we not so good disciples? Now, good disciples are not perfect but they are people who are determined to the best of their ability with the help of the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus's example, to do what Jesus tells them to do and not to do what Jesus tells them not to do. So people who take that very seriously are following in a path of discipleship and all of us as believers should be doing that. Having said that though, there are people and sometimes we've been guilty of this ourselves who are disciples, but are not being very conscientious about doing what disciples ought to do. Now, I don't point to those people and say, well, they're not really disciples. I just say, you know what? You need to take your discipleship more seriously. You need to follow after Christ more seriously. And you should pray that the Holy Spirit would give you the desire, the motivation, and the strength to do this. Now it's time for the big question. This week, our big question comes from Noah, and that makes this a twice-in-a-row situation because our big question last week came from Noah as well. Here's Noah's question this time. He asks, can women be deacons and elders? So just as a refresher, in our church, the Presbyterian Church of America, we have two kinds of officers. One are elders and the other are the deacons. And so Noah is asking whether it's possible for a woman to be ordained as an elder or a deacon. So the short answer is that in the Presbyterian Church of America, all of our elders and our deacons are men. And the reason for this is that our book of church order which regulates the way that we do everything related to church government, looks at the biblical requirements for these offices and interprets those requirements as requiring that the officers we ordain be men. So when you go in scripture and you look where the scripture gives qualifications for office, what are the characteristics of those elders or those deacons? In those instances, the text describes these as men and our book of church order takes that description at face value and as a result we ordain men to these offices now this practice of ours follows the example of the apostles for example when you look at 
the apostles that followed Jesus. They were men. Historically, this was also true for the church as a whole, where elders were concerned. So no matter what branch of the church you are concerned with, if you go back in its history, you will find that this is uh, a more or less universal practice, at least where elders are concerned. Now, there is some debate, though, about deacons. And in the Reformed tradition, you will see some debate over whether or not it's possible for women to be uh, set apart as deacons. Uh, John Calvin, for example, thought that there could be deaconesses in the church, and he found biblical warrant for that. And there is at least one conservative Orthodox Reformed denomination, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, that does have ordained deaconesses. Now, in the Presbyterian Church of America, we disagree over their interpretation, but we still respect them, and hopefully they respect us as well. We recognize that there's a difference of interpretation and that it's possible to have these differences and still to maintain a, a respect for how other people are, in a good-natured way, attempting to interpret the requirements for office. I want to say two things here that I think are really important. The first is this. It's really important that we follow the teaching of the Bible, even when we don't agree with it or understand it. Now, I know sometimes it's easy to pretend like the Bible never says anything that we don't agree with, but the reality is we're all products of our culture. And so inevitably the Bible at one point or another is going to mandate something that we just don't agree with, or it just doesn't feel right to us. And we're going to struggle with it. I acknowledge that. And I recognize that this is one of those things for a lot of people. It's something that they struggle with and it's okay to struggle with it. But I want to encourage everyone listening to strive whenever possible to follow the teaching of the Bible, even when you don't agree and even when you don't understand. There's a value to that kind of faithfulness. Having said that, I think it's also important to be really careful about coming up with your own reasons for why the Bible teaches what it does when the Bible doesn't actually say those things. And this is one of those areas where people have come up with a lot of explanations for why these ordained offices would be reserved for men. Sometimes they've thought about maybe like men are more able than women. Uh, women are not able to do certain things that uh, men are better than women or, you know, whatever the rationale might be. And I think it's really, really important when the Bible doesn't give rationales like this, that we not invent them for ourselves and then treat them as something that the Bible actually teaches. As I say, the reason for our practice is that we're attempting to follow the requirements for office that are spelled out in Scripture. That's what we're trying to do. And there's not a kind of theory about uh, what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman or, or what can women do or not do or men do or not do that is behind that. I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't have anything to say about those other questions. But when it comes to this particular question, I think it's really important to keep that clearly in mind. Now, I also want to say one other thing, which is this. When people disagree with the teaching or the practice of the historic church, especially 
when we're talking about the church as a whole throughout history, not just one branch of the church, I think it's valuable to try to understand why they disagree. Because there's a big difference between a person who's saying, I don't think the Bible teaches what you think it teaches. And a person who's saying, I don't care what the Bible says, this is wrong. Now, a lot of times when people push back against the, the more traditional aspects of our church polity or our theology, we want to make distinctions between people who are pushing back because they're not sure that what we're saying the Bible teaches is really what it teaches. And between people who are like, look, I don't care what the Bible says, I still think this is wrong. And if you do this, then it must be wrong. And I think it's also important for you as a person who one time or another will struggle with what the Bible teaches to ask yourself this same question. Are you struggling with it because you don't think it's what the Bible teaches? Or are you struggling with it because you don't care what the Bible teaches? It just feels wrong to you regardless of what authority is behind this teaching. So, I hope that's helpful in thinking through this question. Uh, just like last week, there's much more that can be said about this than what I can pack into a single episode. So hopefully you've got a little bit to think about here. And if you have more questions, you can certainly come back and ask those as well. And now it's time for a few fun questions. We have questions this week from Susanna and from Sam. Susanna asks, I'm making a book on COVID. Do you have any advice? Wow, Susanna, that sounds like quite a project, a book on COVID. Well, there is no question that the COVID-19 pandemic overturned a lot of people's lives, really turned our world upside down. Certainly in the church, we felt the effects not only of the pandemic and the suffering that it has caused, but also all of the, the precautions and the measures that we've tried to take to minimize the risks of the pandemic and the toll that those things have taken on us as well. As far as advice to you on making a book about COVID, I'm not really sure what I would say, apart from this, try to capture as much of your own experience as possible. Because when you look back on these days, over time, a lot of the details will have been forgotten. And it will be helpful to you to have some way of remembering the things that you experienced and the things that you thought and the things that you were worried about even once those things are in the past. So I would say whatever it is, whatever you are thinking of, get it down on paper, document it, even if you don't fully understand the importance of it, because you'll be able to then go back and reflect on those things when you remember this. I would also say this, that whenever it comes to thinking about the pandemic and everything that we've been through over the past year and a half, it's really good to dig deep and find a lot of charity towards people who have suffered, and towards people who have struggled with the demands of the pandemic on their lives. We have to make a lot of sacrifices. We've seen a lot of changes, and, and we've been pretty divided over a lot of this stuff. I think it's helpful to look at the people who 
disagree with you. The people that, that you don't think made the right decisions during the course of the pandemic and extend a lot of charity and a lot of love towards those people and recognize that nobody ever does an unprecedented thing in a perfect way. None of us had ever been through anything like this before. And so you can't expect any of us to navigate it perfectly. We ought to extend a lot of charity towards one another. And finally, Sam VR asks, did you watch the Olympics? Well, this is a great question because it reminded me that the Olympics happened and the answer, as you probably guessed, is that no, I did not watch the Olympics. I have watched the Olympics in the past, and I think it's it's fantastic and fascinating. I just didn't have time to pay much attention to it this time around. I could tell you, though, my favorite story from the Olympics, the, the best Olympic moment that I can remember, because it happened way back in 1980. I was just 10 years old. In the Winter Olympics, there was a famous hockey game between the United States and the Soviet Union. And at the time, everybody in the United States felt super inferior to the Soviet Union and pretty threatened by them. And so when at the last moment, the Americans got a goal and won this game, it was a euphoric moment. It felt like that team had accomplished the impossible and everybody fell in love with hockey at that moment. I still remember it as a kid, even though the Soviet Union is long gone and all of the fears that shaped the world then have, have gone away. I still remember that that way that a single sporting event and, and indeed a single goal during a single sporting event had the power to unify and give hope to an entire nation. It was pretty amazing. And it shows you the power that the Olympics have in our imagination. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions. <laughs>